This is Pat Soundbites Unplugged. Unplugged. The podcast where all the artists go to tell it as it is. Careers, music, tours, and more. And here's your host, the man that refuses to eat squid, Pat Calamari. Hey, Pat Calamari here. Hope everyone is doing well. You know me, keeping new music alive on the radio, on the video, doing all kinds of chats, doing a lot more Zoom than on the podcast, but I got a good one for you today and probably a bunch more this week. All good ones, I should say. Hey, don't forget to subscribe. Follow my podcast, Pat Soundbites Unplugged, whether on Deezer, Apple Podcasts, Simplecast, iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, iHeart. I'm on them all. Also find me on Twitter and Instagram. And don't forget my Patreon page. Become a fan club member. Go to the early access tier. can get shout outs. And of course, exclusive content from the artists for only my Patreon folks that follow me. So what are you waiting for? Today, episode 73, man, it's a doozy. It's a big one. Solid, solid, solid rock legend. Prod rock legend. Great guitarist. Great musician all around. I mean, you can't make it up. I'm talking the one, the only, Steve Hackett. How cool is that? Got to chat with Steve. Steve was in the, his home in the UK. A very quick 20 minutes or so chat as he had another interview right behind me. Steve's got a book, Autobiography. Comes officially out in July. A Genesis in My Bed. Well, I'm not going to tell you where that line came from. You need to buy the book. But it is a pretty cool line. And it is a pretty interesting story. And Steve takes you all the way to the beginning. Growing up in uh, the UK. And uh, his family actually moved to um, Vancouver in Canada. And ended up back in the UK. And talks about... Going to the clubs, the scenes in the London scene there. Talking about getting in bands, talking about taking the ad out. Talking about Genesis. Talking about the departure of leaving Genesis. His solo career and so much more. What a super guy. Great chat. So please, by all means, listen, share, and keep doing what you do. I can't thank you all enough. So, without further ado, go out and buy the book, A Genesis in My Bed. Really cool stuff. And an easy read. Not too bad. I couldn't put it down, I can tell you that. All right, live, love, and laugh a lot, because life is way too short. Enjoy my chat with Mr. Steve Hackett. WBXO Classic Rock Redefined in conjunction with Pat Soundbites Unplug. Such an honor to have one of the most influential rock guitarists of all time on the line. The amazing 
Mr. Steve Hackett. How are you, Steve? Very well, Pat. Nice to talk to you. Thank you for your time. Steve's got an autobiography which launches out in July, A Genesis in My Bed. I got to tell you, Steve, once I opened it up, I couldn't put it down. A great, great read. Thank you. Yeah, I had a great time doing it. It's taken about 15 years to finish off. It started ages ago, and uh, uh, of course, it got finished off this year, and it'll be out next month. Wow. I mean, you talk really candid about your early life, your time with Genesis, uh, some personal relationships with the other four members, great insight of, of being in this major band, and all the way to where you are today. Steve, let me just take you to the beginning and then I'll sure. touch upon some notes that I have. I mean, I, reading the book, your family was somewhat musically inclined, right? On your, I want to say your dad's side, and it started yeah. with harmonica for the most part. That's right. Yeah, yeah. He, he played a number of instruments just for fun. He was a very clever guy and uh, no longer alive now. But um, he, um, he introduced me to harmonica, and I was dead serious about it from the age of two. Uh, his harmonica became mine. And uh, I was working on it ever since then. And then you're pretty much self-taught as a guitarist. Am I correct with that? Uh, that's right. But that, that means that everyone that I liked, anyone that I liked, became my teacher. You learn so much by watching and listening to other people. So um, it, didn't, it didn't come fully formed. Whatever I play, it's, you know, we're standing on the, uh, on the shoulders of giants, all of us. I understand. If if somebody was looking to get into the learn how to play guitar, Steve, what advice would you give? Would you recommend that they start with an acoustic guitar first before jumping into an electric guitar? Uh, absolutely, because you don't want to be dealing with issues of feedback and too much volume and all that kind of stuff. Um, acoustic guitar is best to start off um and uh, of course, I, I, I happen to love acoustic guitar. It can be it can be just as powerful uh, uh, in a way. It's it, it's harder. It forces you to be. Um, um, let's put it this way. The independence of fingers on the on the on the right hand. If you're using nylon strings, you've got a huge um, uh, variation in tonal control that you can you can. Uh, produce something Segovia said he, he thought it was the the only truly polyphonic instrument <laughs> oh, okay I got you well getting into uh, I mean you become such a, a a great guitarist whether it's acoustic or electric and going through some of my notes in the book I mean I guess uh, certainly timing is everything you kind of grew up in the whole uh, and when uh, you know the Peter Green, type of days back and, and, and checking him out and going to some shows. And uh, uh, I guess it comes down to put, placing that ad. I mean, uh, trying to get in the bed and looking to see if uh, someone's going to answer your ad. And uh, out of the blue, you get that phone call from Peter Gabriel. Talk about timing, huh? Yeah, well, that was, you know, five years of ads led to that. Uh, every week I was advertising in Melody Maker and um, that's where so many British bands were formed on the back pages of Melody Maker. All the big British bands, um, there was something that, that came out of that. Talking about Led Zeppelin um, and, and many more, many more bands. That was what it was all about. 
And then, you know, you're getting on the phone. Did you? I'm not quite sure if I understood it. Did you really know who Genesis was before you went for the audition and know Peter and know Mike and Tony? No, I, I didn't know them. I knew the band name. I'd, I'd heard of that. Um, but I, I didn't really know what they did. And, and Pete um, recommended that I listen to one particular track on one particular album, which was um, something of a future direction for them. Uh, but we hit it off from the word go on the phone and uh, we, we met up I, and uh, I, I really met uh, both Pete and Tony, Tony Banks, and um, they sort of auditioned me at home. I was living at home with my parents and I was playing some pieces through with my brother, John, who was playing a mixture of flute and guitar and I was swapping guitar and harmonica. So I was able to play them a number of different things in a number of different styles. Um, and I think there was maybe one thing that I did which was much more melodic than the other things. And so I think they liked the sort of gentle, more lyrical type stuff because um, Genesis in those days, um, they used a lot of acoustic guitar and uh, many of the melodies were very gentle. Uh, and it, I think it became harder edged later on. It became more of a rock band over time I like the fact that, you know, after you auditioned, and I'm not sure if they offered you the job or not, but the fact that you, you know, went to a local pub and with a friend and going, boy, do I, do I take this chance? Do I not take this chance? And it's always about the risk. And, uh, well, for a rock fan as myself and a fan of yours, I'm, I'm glad you took that chance because uh, Genesis was not certainly uh, would be the same without you, at least in the early days. I think you made such a big influence, uh, yeah. hang, you know, working and having that chemistry with the uh, the three guys for sure. Yeah, it's it's funny that, isn't it? Um, I was thinking uh, also, you know, uh, uh, John Paul Jones of uh, uh, Led Zeppelin said that you know he'd worked a little bit with jimmy page and then he, he read that jimmy page was looking for a bass player to put together a band and he said to his wife oh he's probably already got a bass player and his wife said to him why don't you give him a call anyway you know so it's always someone else who gets to make up your mind for you and um otherwise we might well just sit at home and and have, have made another kind of of decision and history would take a very different turn but those key moments, those tipping points, they involve other characters. I mean, I wasn't at all sure. I, I'd hardly spent a night away from home and suddenly I was going to have to live with this band and you know, go out on the road with them and, and go and write with them off somewhere else. Yeah, you know, we write and work in the country, you know, all this kind of stuff out of town. I, I was a town boy, so um, it was a big shock to my system doing all of that. But I'm glad I'm glad I bit the bullet and did it. I wouldn't anybody. Yeah. Absolutely. And then you get to go to Peter's house and room with Peter. I like the line and I wrote down here, board a spaceship to a new planet with a bunch of aliens. I mean, oh, yeah. it's all about the risk, right? I mean, timing, the risk. I mean, if you don't take the risk, you know, again, why why put in the ad? So uh, yeah. congratulations. Good for you to do that. I like the fact that you really, in the book, you noted Buddy Rich, Steve, and you really give homage to Buddy Rich and his style of music which is what you mentioned like in the progressive rock, which I thought yeah. was very interesting. And I don't know how many people would understand that. I think that's really uh, 
that was a good line there to add him. Tell me, tell me about that. Sure. Well, I think it was uh, Phil Collins who first turned me on to Buddy Rich. And um, in fairly recent years, I bought some stuff that they were a little bit like maybe classical music that had become jazz standards. And um, I was thinking of the film Kismet that my mother loved so much. In other words, the music of Borodin, which becomes a Hollywood musical. And the track Baubles, Bangles and Beads, which I think is from, I'm trying to think of the original piece, Prince Eagle or something or other, uh, with Borodin. And Buddy Rich's version of that has got all these accents, these jazz accents, but it means that the, the band are really, really tight. And you can start to see the roots of what influenced bands like Yes and Genesis. Uh, you know, the use of time signatures and accents, syncopation, what makes a rhythm swing? What makes a melody swing? What makes it work? So there's one eye on that, one eye on classical music from the team I was working with called Genesis. And um, it's a fusion of those very separate schools of thought. I thought it was very interesting and that it's eye-opening for me and I think it'd be very eye-opening for the listeners and uh, the folks that read the book. The other one that stuck out was, I think, tell me the importance of adding that instrument to Mellotron. I mean, you were like really hooked on to go, look, we need, I think we need to get one of these. And I think it was Crimson King Crimson that had one and you and Tony go out and buy one. And uh, tell me the importance of that. Did that help your sound or besides yeah. the band's sound? Well, um, shortly after Ian McDonald, who'd been, uh, who'd been responsible for writing a lot of that uh, original music on uh, in the court of the Crimson King, um, I befriended him. He was, um, I was with a band a year before Genesis called Quiet World, and we were making an album, and he was a friend of a guy who was in the band called Phil Henderson, who was a um, he was an arranger. So the the, uh, the band had an in-house arranger who wrote orchestral arrangements for the LSO and what have you. But they'd been in the army together. Ian was in the army ever since he was 16 years old. His, his father uh, made that decision for him. And he came along to one of our sessions and I, I got to meet Ian. He was a big hero of mine. And uh, he said nice things about my playing. We became firm friends. And um, after I was in Genesis for a few months, um, I kept going on about the need to get a Mellotron because I'd seen Crimson work with a, a Mellotron very, very well. And of course, I knew a little bit of the Beatles influence of that. Strawberry Fields, the introduction. Um, but then I'd also seen the Moody Blues at uh, the Isle of Wight Festival, the same last big gig that Jimi Hendrix played. And um, it made them sound like an orchestra. And I thought, you know, uh, any band that has got one of these, it's like a kind of musical version of the TARDIS. I don't know if you know Doctor Who, the series. Yes. Uh, but it's like a like an old police <laughs> phone box, and it, but people get inside it, and it takes them off to other places, other times. And so it's like a sort of musical time machine. Suddenly you can be an orchestra or a choir, or it could do other bells and whistles, bits of the... Uh, the White Album that the Beatles had done, you know, the uh, the Fast and Furious Dylan guitar intro, it sounded a bit flamenco to one of the tunes around that bungalow bill. And, you know, uh, that was the Mel, that, that was the thing. So I knew we had to get one of those. I knew we had to get a light show. Um, 
And then uh, about a year later, I knew after we bought our Mellotron off of King Crimson, funnily enough, who seemed to have Mellotrons to spare. They were more heavily funded than we were at that time. Uh, so we bought one of them off of Robert Fripp. And um, a, about a year later, we got, we got a monophonic synthesizer, a little tiny thing. But we needed to be cutting edge. And although these things are old instruments now and old ideas, they were cutting edge for their time. So I felt Genesis had to be in the forefront of that so that um, you know, no one would go see the show saying, oh, I saw these other guys and they had a better light show and they had this together. So I knew presentation was 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 everything for the band. That was that was it. It's not the songs. Uh, the songs can be great. But unless you've got that thing organized where when people see it, it, it it's got to look uh, cross between something magical and an army coming at you, it seems to me. If you haven't got all that, then you're not going to be world class. And I, I wanted Genesis to be world class. Well, there you go. The importance of that one little instrument. And it took you to the whole different level, which is great. And let yeah. me just skip right through here. Genesis, you're in Genesis. You guys are on top of the world. And then you start working like any other artist. You know, you got ideas and you start working on your solo album, which really does well. And I guess my, I, I don't want to say my, my killer question for you, but the one I, you know, then you start working on your second solo. And for the love of me, I have no idea why Mike or Tony would say, hey, it's either us or, you know, your, your second thing. I mean, they had their own thing going on. Were they just jealous? Were they envy? I mean, why would they say that? Why would they get you to stop? What, well, you're part of the band and you're doing so well. It's not like you were you know, weakening the band because of your solo album. I just, I'm scratching my head forever trying to know that answer. Well, so go ahead, Steve. Okay, well, in the book, I just reported the facts. Um, and I like to think that I've been even-handed about it and... Um, uh, I wanted to praise the guys because I enjoyed working with them very much. And I think that the, the music that we managed to pull together, um, I think, was exceptional. Uh, it still survives. Um, many people play it. Uh, but I think that the band, once Peter Gabriel left and, and I left, I think there was a danger that a band that starts to hemorrhage members um, has to look at the possibility of perhaps it's a good idea to do solo albums to let off steam and um, i mean i have friends in other bands who who are doing solo projects and they're going through the same thing themselves now you know um it's always going to be hard i think that the trouble with bands is that when people start to think that they own each other um that's where it becomes very difficult because you know you've got the idea of autonomy versus what's the alternative slavery and um you've got to be free to do what what you do and i think that it broadened me and it meant that i was able to bring more ideas to the band rather than less once i'd increased my writing output um i think it was only to the benefit of the band um and you can see the effect of that on trick of the tail and on wind and weathering so um uh, all I can say is that I chose autonomy. I just I chose to make all these other albums that I, I did with other wonderful people that I got to work with. 
wonderful uh, Americans such as um, the guys from Kansas. Yeah, I mean, you you, you go into... I'm sorry. Yeah, you go into Please Don't Touch, and you got yeah. Richie Haven and Steve Richie Walsh Haven. and yeah. Phil Ebert of Kansas. I mean, you yeah. make the decision to depart, which is another, you know, like life-changing moment. Am I doing the right thing? Should I leave? Should I not? But, yeah. thank you know, you did the right thing, I think, and uh, your creative energy keeps going, and uh, the album does very well, Please Don't Touch, and um, you're off to the races, as they say. Yeah, and then I the next the next by the next year I was forming my own band and we were doing spectral mornings, and we were uh, premiering that testing that stuff live, uh, so we had the best of those two previous albums, and um, uh, many years later, of course, I decided decades later to do uh, a show showcasing Genesis songs, and so I did Genesis Revisited um with presentation you know with screens with lights uh with uh, an extraordinary team that's changed a couple of times people like uh, nick beggs who uh, was on bass and um uh from kajigugu and he worked with so many other people stephen wilson etc um and so it was rather wonderful you know to see this changing band and the band i have at the moment has jonas reingold in from the Flower Kings and and, um, and and Craig Blundell, who's worked again uh, with Stephen Wilson. So I think, you know, these bands do tend to sort of share a kind of pool of, of characters, like-minded bands that we think of as progressive, whether it's from a certain era, like me working with John Wetton, the late great John Wetton, or, or Chris Squire, who I did a lot of stuff with uh, in recent years before they passed both hugely talented, influential characters, I mean, giants of, you know, this this uh, this genre that is pan-genre, that's so many styles and full of surprises. So wonderful to work with them and uh, lovely to be working now. In, in, in lockdown, I'm, I'm recording like crazy every day. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you. I know you're a busy guy. You did a small little stint with GTR with Steve Howe, produced by uh, the wonderful uh, Jeff Downs. And uh, you continue to do your own little thing. You're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2010. Congratulations on that. I got to say, your last three solo albums have really charted well worldwide. I mean, I fell in love with The Edge of Light. I've been playing. My theme on my radio show is keeping new music alive. And I love, I always play Under the Eye of the Sun, which is such a a beautiful song and, and beast in our time. I mean, I'm... I'm always playing uh, tracks from your solo album, but your oh, last you three have really uh, taken off. Thank you. Yeah, I think that At the Edge of Light is probably the best rock album I've done, and I've done a lot of albums. It's just that something came together on that album, and um, I think all these different styles that I've been trying to work for quite some time, um, I deliberately didn't do an acoustic track on it because I wanted to kick the pace up. And uh, the one you mentioned, Under the Eye of the Sun, is very basically fast and furious. Um, there's some extraordinary bass work on it from, from Jonas. It's, he's playing it like a lead instrument, um, incredibly fast. Uh, really an extraordinary bass player. And um, it's Gully Bream on drums on that. Gully, Gully Bream um, 
from the band Metaforte on that. Okay. Um, so it's it's a kind of international team on that on that album. Uh, uh, Shima Mukherjee, uh, an extraordinary girl, um, sitar virtuoso. Uh, so there are about nineteen or twenty people from all over the world on that. On that. So I guess it's um, I guess it's world music in in a sense. Uh, maybe it's progressive. Maybe it's world prog. I, I don't know. There's not really a there's not really a way of describing it, but it's got orchestral stuff and it's got rock stuff, uh, many things on it. And uh, it feels like that that was the best one. But I, I fall in love with every album that I do, uh, particularly in recent years. I've been I've been very lucky to work with great teams. So I don't really think of them as solo albums. I think that, yeah, I, got, I get this pool of talent together, but it's what they bring to it. Extraordinary people. I, I got to add, I know my time is running out here. I got to add blues with a feeling. Oh, my goodness. Your harmonica playing. I mean, we love you for a guitarist, but your harmonica playing. You, I noticed, Steve, going to shows, Do you You don't really throw in, in the set list any of the songs from the blues with a feeling. Or maybe you do that I'm not aware of. But I think if you did, boy, the crowd would really go crazy. I, that's a great, yeah. that's another one, a great, great album of you uh, experimenting and playing around. And uh, wow, that, that gives me the wow factor, Steve. <laughs> well, I'm glad you like, I'm glad you like that album. Uh, um, uh, I had a lot of fun doing it. Um, I was a harmonica player um, years before I was a guitarist, um, at least 10 years beforehand and um i used to play chromatic more but i fell in love with blues harmonica um and i absolutely loved the work of paul butterfield oh uh, yes the paul butterfield blues band uh that for me was exemplary blues harmonica playing the amplified thing but he was great at acoustic uh, blues as well i mean he had such control um uh so I was very lucky to get to see his band in the mid-1960s. In 1966, I saw him with Mike Bloomfield on guitar, who had already been working with Bob Dylan and Elvin Bishop. And all those guys on that night were absolutely smoking. They were really, they were on such form. It was the best blues show I had ever seen. They absolutely floored me. They flattened me. No doubt about it. Paul Butterfield, the best of the best. One of the others, well, besides... Uh... Um, one of the other songs that I just love in, in out of all your catalog, and it comes with the Genesis time, is Dancing with the Moonlight Night. With all the, the progressing, all the changes of that song, I think it's one of the best progressive tunes out there for all these years. Yeah, I, I was very proud of that one because it goes through so many changes, but it manages to be uh, cohesive. Lots of different styles in it. Uh, Scottish plain song stuff that's Elgarian, a little bit anthemic. There's a hint of Mozart in there with the Mellotron voices coming in. And there's fusion, there's stuff, keyboard lines that sound like Prokofiev could have written them and tapping from the guitar and octave jumps, sweep picking and lots and lots of techniques and all held together by, by Phil Collins' amazing drumming um, when he was still playing with a very, very light touch before those cannons kicked in. Um, so you've, I'm glad you like that track. That's my favorite Genesis track you mentioned. Oh, excellent. I love it. Let me, before I let you go, Steve, I've yep. asked a lot of great guitar players like yourself. Can you describe your tone, the feel that comes out? Um, well, um, I, 
think that I got very influenced. You mentioned blues. That was where guitar sound started to develop for electric guitarists. And with the use of feedback and all of that, I, I was many years later <clears throat> waiting for the day when guitar manufacturers would produce a guitar that had feedback on board. In other words, you didn't need to stand near your amp <clears throat> and deafen yourself and everyone else. And that hit and miss process. And then uh, the Fernandez guitars <clears throat> developed that that thing. So it's got a, it's got a pickup on it that, that does that. And a, a lot of my tone comes from that to from being able to sustain. So when it sustains, it gets a little bit more like a voice or a bit more like a violin. Uh, it sounds like it's being bowed uh, and that affords you greater control in a way. So somewhere between the Fernandez and the and the Gibson Les Paul. Of course, I still use distortion and effects and, and all of that. But um, uh, it's a slightly different take on the uh, on the instrument. It means you can play slower if you want and you can rattle off note salvos if you want as well. But um, it becomes another kind of instrument, I think, once you've got sustain under control. Gotcha. Well, thank you for that answer, and I understand it completely. The book is called A Genesis in My Bed. Oh, my goodness, I would encourage everybody to buy it, and I can't wait to get to see you back on the road. I know it's the Seconds Out tour, and I know you're probably itching to get back on the road as well. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much yes. as I have, Steve. Absolutely. Great talking to you, Pat. Uh, 